I um, I want to take you this morning on a journey into my thinking, which necessitates it being a short trip. <laughs> One of the things that um, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I think everybody does the same kind of stuff that I do, and I find out nobody else does. So I would assume that, uh, that this would be familiar to, uh, to most everybody, but maybe it's not. I don't know. But I ask questions of the Lord. I, um, I don't know. It's just in my nature. I, not only, I take things for, for what they are and what they're purported to be, and I ask questions about it. I ask the Lord why. I ask the Lord when on a lot of things. I just ask him questions, and he answered me. And so there's a lot of things that, uh, that motivate me to do what I do and to teach what I teach because of the questions and answers, questions I ask of the Lord and the answers that I get from him. And here's a question that I've been pondering on for the last week, and that is, what did the early church teach? Now, it may seem like a simple answer, but really, if you look at the book of Acts, the only thing that we really have record of or much information about is how they preached to get people saved. In Acts chapter 2, you know the story about how the Holy Ghost came upon the 120 in the upper room and it spilled out into the streets and Peter preached Jesus crucified and resurrected and 3,000 people got saved. The Bible then tells us about in Acts chapter 3 how that outside of any known church service or anything like that, the man at the beautiful gate was healed. Peter responds to their questions about what's going on, how this happened with preaching about Jesus crucified and resurrected. 5,000 people get saved. But the Bible doesn't really tell us in Acts much of what was preached in church services. There are a couple of exceptions And those have to do with Paul and him preaching primarily who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done for us. But the book of Acts covers a relatively short period of time. Most uh, Bible scholars agree that it was um, start to finish the book of Acts was about 30 years. And we know about Paul's ministry. Paul would go to a place reason in the synagogues if they had one if the cities had one then he'd wind up testifying that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament was was referring to and then receiving the left foot of fellowship from among the Jews and then they started the churches and Paul would stay there anywhere from three months in Thessalonica to three and a half years in Ephesus So for the time that Paul was there, I I think we can assume what he preached is what we have record of in in the letters that he wrote to the church. But what about when he leaves? Would you trust somebody that's been saved for three months to be the pastor of a church? Well, they had no choice. Paul would select elders. But after Paul left, what would those elders do? We don't have any record. Now, the people that made up these new churches were idolaters. They were used to worshiping other gods in other temples. Not, now, don't, don't think that I'm saying they picked their favorite god and worshiped him. They worshiped all kinds of gods. Everybody pretty much worshiped every god that there was a temple of or for in their cities or towns. So the Holy Ghost had a work to do that seems to me was primarily to show the difference between Christianity and idolatry. These people that made up the churches in the first generation, they were used to supernatural things. They were used to seeing the move of spiritual things. 
Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about how the Spirit of God wouldn't say certain things about Jesus because there were things that were taking place in their services where there would be a supernatural manifestation, but not of God. Well, that didn't freak anybody out because everybody in those days were used to them. And so it seems primarily the work of the Holy Ghost was to show the greatness of the power of God, how much greater the power of God was than idols and the supernatural manifestations that were occurring in that respect. Now, we know about Paul writing letters to the churches. But over a 30-year period, which, as I said, probably covers the book of Acts, most of the churches only received one letter. How do you live on one letter for 30 years? Now, in the case of the Corinthians, he had to send them four because they were so messed up, they didn't know what was going on. But one thing about it is that when they came to church, they had something. Might not be right. Might not be God. But they had something. They came to church with something. And so one part of Paul's letters Part of one of the letters that he wrote to Corinth has to do with the order of the church and so forth. Now, when he wrote to Timothy, the letters written to specific individuals was a little different than than the uh, letters written to churches. He got a lot more personal with especially Timothy because he called him his son in the faith. Timothy was born again in Paul's ministry and... um, a partner with him in ministry from that time forward. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. Paul wrote some things to Timothy that I think are instructive for us when we understand how he operated. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, living in the dead, at his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered. Paul's come to the end of his life. I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only to me, but unto all them that love his appearing. For thy, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Now, when Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, Timothy has had uh, greater contact with Paul than pretty much anybody else. There may have been a couple that were in the same position as him, but not many. He's had more time around Paul's ministry and around Paul himself than just about anybody else. He was a traveling companion of his, of Paul's, I mean. He was one that was sent on certain missions and assignments by Paul. And so he's worked with him closely. So when he says preach the word, he understands what Paul has been preaching all these years, all this time. He understands a bit about who he is in Christ and who we are and who we've been made to be in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection.
But notice that Paul told him, when you come, come quick if you can. But when you come, bring the cloak, a garment that I left with a certain person in a certain place. But he said, bring the books, the parchments. Bring the things that I've written down about who we are and what belongs to us. That's such a precious thing when I read that. Because Paul knows what's on the parchments. He's probably had somebody write them out. Paul did very little of his transcribing himself. But over and over again, it tells us certain letters to the churches were written by some of his helpers, certain ones of his helpers, dictated from Paul, by Paul, to be translated or transcribed by certain of his helpers. And so those letters would be sent to the churches. But Paul's got his own set of writings. He's got his own set. At the end of his life, at the end of his days, he died around 67 A.D. This was written probably a year or two before that. So 65, 66 A.D., when he's writing to Timothy, this is 30 years before Timothy is killed as the pastor of the bishop in Ephesus, stoned because he's withstanding and preaching against some festivity, some parade, some special worship to a false idol, false god. And Timothy's stoned on the streets, the main street of Ephesus at age 80. So that means when he sends this letter to him, he's about 50 maybe 51, Timothy I'm talking about. Paul was at the end of his days. He was probably 12 to 13, 14 years older than Timothy, something like that. And so he tells Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Folks, I want you to understand, and this may be a long roundabout way to get there, but I want you to understand that even from the days of the early church, the first generation, preaching the word means something specific to the Holy Ghost that it doesn't always mean to the people. That's why so much of Paul's writings to the church are correction, instruction in what things should be and how things should be. Maybe the greatest example of that is what he, what he writes to the Corinthians because they're in a, a place where history tells us, and we have archaeological evidence as well, about how many temples there were in Corinth. For the size town Corinth was, they had more temples per capita than any other place on the earth. And nearly all of these temples in this temple worship involved sexual sin. And the early church wasn't, wasn't shy about calling sin, sin. I know nobody wants to rock the boats nowadays. And so homosexuality becomes a real issue. Transgenderism becomes a real issue. Where the world is concerned, and for the most part, the church is silent. Because nobody wants to offend anybody. Jesus said in one place in his earthly ministry, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, that doesn't mean he came to start fights. Because remember, he told Herod, I'm sorry, he told Pilate that his kingdom wasn't of this world. And if it had been, his, his disciples would fight. So Jesus didn't come to start a fight. But the sword he's talking about is the division between right and wrong. Truth and a lie. That's why we're told to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, if we're supposed to rightly divide it, that means it's possible for it to be wrongly divided. And since Jesus said that deception would be a major factor in the last days, I think we have to assume that means a lot of wrongly divided scripture. So what did Paul do? 
Paul wrote letters to churches that talked about the Old Testament. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The ministry of Jesus and the fulfillment of the Old Covenant by Jesus and by his sacrifice was as big a shift as you could possibly make. Because up until that point in time, everything about relationship with God had to do with the Jews and what few Gentiles had converted to Judaism, but particularly the law of Moses, keeping the law of Moses. That's the only place anybody had. Now Jesus comes along and fulfills the law of Moses, picks people like Peter and Paul, selects them to tell the world, particularly the Jewish community first, but then the rest of the world after, that it's not about the law of Moses anymore. It's not about keeping certain commandments. It's not about what you eat or don't eat. That was one of the first things that happened with Peter, you remember. In Acts chapter 10, he had the vision of the sheep being held by the four corners and containing all the animals of the world. And the Lord speaking to him in that vision saying, rise, slay, and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. So Peter is apparently keeping the law of Moses even after he's born again, at least in some respect, at least when it comes to food, the dietary restrictions. But the Lord speaks to him and says, don't call unclean that which I have cleansed. A New Testament transfer, uh, transcribing or interpretation of that might be, I want you to eat bacon. God says not only is bacon good, but you should eat it. (laughs) You know, we laugh about that, but to the Jews, that's pretty much what it is. So Paul comes along and starts telling everybody, and apparently this is somewhat different than what Peter has been preaching and what Peter has been living. But Paul says, you don't have to keep the law. You don't have to keep the law anymore. Well, that instantly raises questions from every quarter that if we don't have to keep the law, does that mean the law of Moses is a bad thing? And Paul is left with trying to convince people and persuade them with the help of the Holy Ghost. But again, the Holy Ghost doesn't usurp anybody's will, so it still comes down to the individual's choice about what they believe. But Paul tries to convince everybody with the help of the Holy Ghost that the law of Moses was fulfilled. It's not that it was a bad thing. It was the best thing you could have at that point in time, but we're not in that point in time anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the law. But notice what he writes to the churches to try to instruct them. Second Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, first Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. Moreover, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, the the Corinthians are a Gentile church, not a Jewish church. But Paul calls Jewish history and things pertaining to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob their fathers. Well, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fathers to the Gentiles in the Corinthian church's day, then they've got to be fathers to us too. So he said, I want you to know, don't be ignorant of what happened in our history fulfilled by Jesus. How that we, they were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses. Please notice that phrase. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was, was Christ. So notice what he's saying. We know specifically what time period he's talking about. He's talking about when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it says that when they passed through the Red Sea, you remember the the story, I'm sure, about how Moses stretched forth his rod and divided the waters. It says when they passed through that Red Sea, they were baptized unto Moses. They were baptized unto Moses. And then you remember that in the wilderness... Not the 40 years in the wilderness, the first time 
But there were two occurrences. The first was before they got to the promised land and, and failed to obey God to go in and take it. The second was during the 40 years. The first time they came to the, to the rock that's being referred to here by Paul, it was where they were three days' walk from any water, and they began to murmur against God and against Moses. And God showed Moses a certain rock, a specific rock, and he told him to strike it. And when he did, enough water came out to feed, uh, to, to satisfy the thirst of millions of people, anywhere from two to seven million people, I've seen estimates. Millions of people, plus the livestock they had, and had more left, more left over. Because God's the God of more than enough. Now, it says that they drank of that spiritual rock, and that rock was Jesus. In other words, when we come out of Egypt, which is a type of the world, God makes us to drink from the provisions that he's made for us. And the Bible identifies that provision as Jesus. But then it makes a, he makes a, a very uh, strange statement because he says the rock went with them. Well, he's got to be speaking figuratively because they didn't carry that rock around. That rock is still in place some years later when they come to it again and Moses is supposed to speak to it, but he disobeys God and hits it again. Water comes out of the rock just the same. But God messed up, um, Moses messed up God's illustration. See, the first time when the rock was struck, that's a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's an example of the crucifixion. The second time when he was supposed to speak to it, the speaking to the rock is how we receive from God now by believing in our hearts and speaking with our mouths. And that was serious enough of, uh, enough of an offense that Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Now let's keep reading here a little bit. We'll pick up again with verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This encompasses the 12 spies story where 10 of them come back with an evil report and fail to take the promised land. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as, they, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You remember when they made the golden calf? That's what this is talking about. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. You know, I bet if God still responded to people committing fornication like that, I'm just guessing that would cut down on a number of things. <laughs> Certainly it would cut down on sin, but it probably ruined a lot of attendance records too. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That's the Numbers 23 story, where the fiery serpents came in among the people. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, same word as examples previously. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So the Bible, in the early days of the church, the first generation of the church, if you, if you will, if you'll allow me to say it that way, the first generation of the church heard a lot about Israel from the Old Testament. And each time they heard about Israel from the Old Testament, the writers, primarily Paul, but others as well, indicated the fulfillment of what Jesus had brought, the completion of what Jesus had done, and the moral of the story about how we are supposed to live. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. The book of Deuteronomy is, is pretty much, for the most part, Moses' farewell address to the people. Joshua is going to take over in his place. 
and lead them into the promised land, which their, their fathers refused to do 40 years before. And so Moses is charging the people, instructing the people about what God wants for them, what they're going to have to do, and how they're going to have to do it. And it always comes back to the word. It always comes back to keeping the commandments of God. Now, for us, that doesn't mean the Ten Commandments, not that they're outdated or anything else. But all the Ten Commandments, all of the 630 commandments given to us throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in one, Jesus said, and that is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God and your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to break any of the Ten Commandments if you're walking in love. You're not going to break any of the 630 commandments if you're walking in love. So Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. He's not saying that you're free from everything else that's ever been written in the law of Moses. He just says it's been fulfilled in Jesus. They couldn't have that. They couldn't love with the love of God because they didn't have the life of God within them. The Bible says in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that we receive in salvation. They couldn't have that. Thank God we can. So he says, continuing his admonition, he said, you know this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known, which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, the mighty hand and his stretched out army, and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. He's talking about the ten plagues that occurred before Moses said to Pharaoh that he could go with the people. And you've seen what he did under the army of Egypt, under their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them unto this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did unto Dathan and Eberim, sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben. How the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. And their households and their tents. And all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. You'd think that seeing that God move that way would make instant believers out of everybody, wouldn't you? Not so for these people's fathers. Not so for the generation that came out of Egypt. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day. That you may be strong and go in and possess the land. He's talking about the promised land. The land of Canaan. And possess the land whether you go to possess it. And that you may prolong your days in the land. Which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed. A land that flows with milk and honey. I want you to notice folks part of the example that the Old Testament provides for us. Is that keeping the word, walking in love, walking according to the word in our lives will prolong our days. You live longer if you walk in the word. For the land whether thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out. Where thou sowest thy seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. He's talking about the flatlands of Egypt. They were nourished by the Nile River. They had created these treadmill-type contraptions to bring the water from one place to another so that things would grow in the desert. He says the promised land is not like that. But the land whether you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. A land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end. And it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season the first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in the corn and the wine and the oil. Now whenever I see the rain talked about in the Old Testament it brings me back to the spiritual connotation or representation For example, in James 5, 7, where it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He said, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. That's got to be a harvest of people, folks. That's the only thing God really cares about. So he's waiting to get as many people into the kingdom of God as he can and has long patience for it, James 5, 7 goes on to say, has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. 
Now, for them, it was a specific rain, literal rain, to water the land of Canaan that they were going in to possess. Well, I don't live in Canaan. I live in spiritual Canaan. I live in that which Canaan is a type of. So there's a lot of spiritual examples and a lot of spiritual representation that's taking place in here. But let's stop for a minute and consider what he's talking about and what it means. If they were baptized under Moses coming through the Red Sea, and as I said, Egypt is always used in Scripture as a type of the world or sinful world. If they came out of that and were baptized under Moses through the Red Sea, that has to be a type of salvation. They came out of the world, they came out of sin to follow God. That has to be a type of salvation. Well, then what's the Canaan land? What's the promised land a type of? A lot of people say it's a type of heaven. But we have to consider, are there any enemies in heaven? Any giants to fight? Any battles to win? No, when you get to heaven, all that's done. So Canaan's land can't be a type of heaven. The church used to sing regularly. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye into Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Oh, who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Now, the church sang that thinking they were talking about heaven. But, folks, that's not where your possessions lie. Have you noticed how many times he's already said when you go into the land to possess it? There's no possessing heaven. Heaven's just waiting for us. There's no possessing heaven. There's no fights to fight. There's no battles to to win. There are no giants to face. Heaven cannot be a type of the promised land or the land of Canaan. Well, what is it a type of? It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost and all the promises that belong to us here on this earth because of what Jesus did. It's a type of healing. It's a type of provision and prosperity and abundance. It's a type of every good thing that Jesus purchased for us. But notice the people of Israel fulfilling the example for us. We are the ones that have to possess it. God's made provision, but you're the one that has to take it. So many people have the idea that whatever God wants, that's the way it'll turn out. Well, folks, if it was up to what God wanted, we'd all be living in the full abundance of the promised land. But it's not up to him. It's up to you and me. So let's keep reading. Verse 15, And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves. You do something. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit. Unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. I want you to notice that, folks. The land that God gives us is a good land. But you can perish in the middle of it. Your actions, your choices, your determination, your faith. Determines whether the promised land is going to really be yours or not. Or for how long the promised land will be yours. Short or long, it's up to you. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontless between your eyes. He's talking about keeping your eye on the word. He's not talking about wearing a silly box around your forehead. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land, the promised land, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, folks, is there any other way we can interpret this other than saying Moses, who is speaking for God, tells them God wants us to live a life that's like heaven on earth? And he tells us how to get it. 
He tells us how to experience it. And it all has to do with the word. Keeping your eyes on the word, believing the word, acting on the word, confessing the word. Now, now this is, well, let me ask it this way. What's the difference in this and what we've seen in the New Testament that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God on the earth? You remember in, Mark, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what the church world knows is the Lord's Prayer. It really was the disciples' prayer because it's not a prayer for everybody all the time. It was a prayer for them during a specific time before Jesus went to the cross and was resurrected from the dead. He taught them to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then he said, thy kingdom come. He's telling them to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Well, it must not have come yet. He told them to pray, thy kingdom come. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God about? Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Now, how is the definition Jesus gives us of the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven, different from Moses saying on behalf of God that God wants your days to be like heaven on earth. What's the difference? Is there any? I can't see any. Can you? And he tells them how to do it. Isn't it a shame that we have to teach people to convince people to experience heaven on earth? Now, nobody has any questions about what things are like in heaven. We may not have a lot of understanding, but the understanding we do have is that everything is the way God wants it to be. There's nobody sick because God doesn't want anybody sick. There's nobody without because God doesn't want anybody without. See, God never changes. So whatever the will of God is for heaven, that's God's will here too. And it's exactly the way he made the earth to be. And until sin entered the scene... That's the way it was. We could legitimately say that before the fall, Adam was providing, presiding over the kingdom of God on the earth. That has to be true, isn't it? We're made in the image and likeness of God and given authority over all the works of God's hands. That's what God said about the making of man. That's what he delivered man unto. That's what he made him to be. It was the kingdom of God here on the earth. Until the fall. And that messed everything up. So Jesus comes to the earth to restore things back to where they were meant to be. So what does he do? He ministers about the kingdom of God. He teaches things in parables to tell us and show us about the kingdom of God. And he exercises authority over sickness and disease. He exercises authority over lack by multiplying the loaves and the fishes and things like that. He exercises authority over the devil by casting demons out of people. He's operating on the earth during those three years of his ministry before he goes to the cross. He's operating on the earth just as Adam was created to operate and function on the earth before the fall. Exactly. And Satan had no power over him whatsoever. Why? Because Jesus always did the things that pleased his father, which point back to keeping the word. So we could even say this. We could take it a step further and say it this way. Because Jesus was a righteous man. He was born of a virgin. There was no sin of the world or death, spiritual death that passed upon him. Because the man was bypassed in the birth experience when it came to Jesus. Folks, the virgin birth means everything. I know a lot of people aren't. I know it's not a popular thing to believe in a lot of circles nowadays. But if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he wasn't righteous on the earth. The same spiritual death would have passed upon him that passed on you and me when we were born. The virgin birth is huge. Because it created a way, a means for God, the creator of the universe, to plant his seed in a woman to produce a righteous man. See, it was his righteousness that kept him from being influenced of the devil. It was his righteousness that kept Jesus from being under the power and the control of the devil. So what does the devil do? He tempts Jesus to try to get him in the same fallen state that Adam came into when he disobeyed God. Jesus wouldn't have any part of it. 
So we could conclude from this, since this is part of the example that is given for us to see, we could conclude from this that a righteous man could operate in the same authority. He could operate in the same power. And he could expect the same results that Jesus got here on the earth. It was his righteousness. It was his nature. It was the way God had made him that gave him authority over the devil. He said himself, now some people argue at this point, and they'll say, well, no, Jesus was the son of God, and so he did everything that he did because he was the son of God. Philippians 2 does not tell us that. And Philippians 2 came from Paul, which means that Jesus had to show him this for us to have a written record of it. Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. He wasn't operating on the earth as the son of God. He operated on the earth as the son of man, anointed by God to do the work that he did. So if we could just find some other righteous man or men or women, then we could expect them to have the same authority as Jesus had. Well, the Bible says that's you and it's me. It says Jesus was made to be sin, who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, I've got a little secret to tell you. It's not because of your great knowledge that you've been given a position of authority over the devil. It's not because you're pretty. It's not because you even come to this church. It's because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That righteousness is everything. Now, the devil wants to tell you that because you've messed up since you've been made righteous, all bets are off. I have a question for you. If that were true, why would the devil want to bring it to your attention? The devil won't show you things that are true if they benefit you. So when he says that all bets are off, you don't qualify anymore because of the mistakes you've made. Yeah, you were born righteous, but you know you're not anymore. We have to understand that there's something he's trying to keep us from seeing and recognizing. And what he's trying to keep us from seeing is that the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus supersedes any mistakes we make. And God has made the simplest plan and procedure available for each and every one of us. And that is when we do mess up, confess it to God and receive cleansing from it and restoration back to the righteousness that we've always had once we made Jesus the Lord of our lives. In other words, it's not about your behavior. It's about your choice. It's about having made the choice that Jesus is your Lord and Savior that brought you into the family of God, which means you were made righteous by his blood that enables God to stand and say, their righteousness is of me. I think we ought to be experiencing a little bit more of this days of heaven on the earth. I'm going to keep reading, picking up again with verse 22. It says, For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and cleave unto him, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Notice he's still talking about us possessing the land. How are we going to do that? Here is the spiritual example that we are to understand. Verse 24. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea, shall your coast be. In other words, he's saying your promised land can be as big as you want it to be. Now, where's the sovereignty of God in that? If God's sovereignty that so, many, so much of the church preaches were the determining, ter, determining factor, and by that I simply mean the idea that if God wants it to be, then it will be. He's sovereign. He chooses. He decides. If that's true, 
then how can God sit back and say, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours? He would have to say instead, wouldn't he? Every place that I've planned for you to walk on, you'll go. But that's not what he said. He's talking to Israel collectively, but to the Israelites specifically and individually. Every place that's sold to your foot shall tread shall be yours. That means if you want even to be part of the kingdom of God here on the earth for you in your life, take it. If you want abundance, the land flowing with milk and honey to be yours in this life, take it. How do we take it? Well, the only way we can receive anything from God, the Bible says, is through faith. He means to exercise your faith, put your faith on it, believe in your heart that God's word is true concerning what you can have and then take it with the words of your mouth. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. There shall no man be able to stand before you for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon as he has said unto you. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Decision time. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. Your call. It's up to you. Finally, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Paul said to the church, wrote to the church at Colossae, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The first example that we have of Israel following after God's instruction is the crossing of the Red Sea, I'm sorry, the crossing of the Jordan River and the taking of the city of Jericho. When they come to the, to the land of Kadesh Barnea, the other side of the Jordan River from the promised land, God instructs the second generation, remember their fathers wouldn't go in, even after spying out the land and finding what a good land it was. But he told them, to go into the sea or go into the Jordan River just like they crossed the Red Sea. They put the ark on the shoulders of the priests and they marched the priests out first. And when they got, when their feet touched the water, the waters began to part. Now the Bible specifically tells us in the historical account that it backed up. The river didn't, didn't just split, you know, little four persons wide aisle to go through because we're talking millions of people that have multiplied two to seven, two to, uh, to seven million people to begin with. And now they've multiplied in the wilderness over 40 years. So there's no telling how many millions of people there are. It could be three or four times that amount, the original amount. Nobody knows. But if he's going to make a way for them to go across the Jordan river on dry ground, he's going to have to open a pretty big hole. So he does. And the Bible tells us that the Jordan River backed up for 50 miles north. A 50 mile wide road for Israel to go over. God is the God that's more than enough. See, we would have considered if one person put their foot in the water and the water backed up about this far, we'd say, wow, that's a miracle. God says, that's not how I do things. Take this 50-mile wide spot. So they get into the promised land. 
They see the same walls around the city of Jericho that their father saw 40 years earlier. What are we going to do? Well, the one thing that they committed to do was follow Joshua. They told Joshua, you be strong, we'll be strong with you. That was certainly a departure from how their parents had acted toward Moses 40 years before. So Joshua gets instruction from God. And the instruction that he gets from God includes two things. It includes walking. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. And the second thing it includes is your mouth. He tells the people of, Jer- uh, people of uh, Israel, here's how we're going to take Jericho. Here's how we're going to defeat those 100-foot walls that are 50 feet thick. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take the priest and put them out front and travel around the city one time for each of the first six days. Then the seventh day, we're going to go around seven times. But here's the catch, Joshua tells them, because here's what God told him to tell. You can't say a word for the first six days. You cannot say a word. Now, folks, there's a couple of ways we could interpret that. We could interpret that they're forbidden from saying a word while they're marching around the city of Jericho or for the 24-hour period of each day. In other words, he's saying this. You're not allowed to speak until the right time comes. Now, I'm of the personal opinion it's got to be for the whole week. Because you know at the campfire later on at night after they've walked around, these people are going to be sitting there saying, have you ever seen a wall like that in your life? Does God know what he's doing here? Now that they know what our plan is and we're in the middle of this week, you think they'll start shooting arrows at us from the, the walls? I think he's having to make them be quiet for the whole seven days. Now, why is that? Because the promises of God aren't received if you're speaking against him. The promises of God are not received if you're talking about how big the problem is. Now, you can't tell me they're not thinking all that stuff all week long. But it's not your thoughts that do you in. We might say that they experienced one of the greatest miracles of God being on their side ever in the history of Israel by thinking thoughts of doubt. So when the devil comes to you and tells you it can't be done, when the devil comes to you and tells you you can't make it, just don't say those things. You're not obligated to say what he says. You're not obligated to repeat it. And the thought in your mind won't stop the blessings of God from coming to pass. But once they get in your mouth, they sure will. So that's what the children of Israel do. They put the priests out front with their horns, walk around the city of Jericho one time each day for six days. On the seventh day, they go around seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, Joshua commands the people to shout. So the priests blow the trumpets. The children of Israel shout. And the walls come down in place. Now the only thing that can mean, and they're they're finding this archaeologically, they're discovering this to be the case. The only way that the, the walls coming down wouldn't have been a hindrance to them, they can't fall over like that. Because if they're 50 feet thick, that still leaves a 50 foot wall. So what they're finding out, what the archaeological digs are finding out, is just the way that it had to be, and that is the earth opened up and the wall went down flat. That's why the Bible says the wall fell flat. So they went in and conquered the land. Now, the Bible tells us that God told them to burn everything in the city of Jericho. It's a type of the tithe. The first city belongs to God. So he told them to kill all the people and to burn everything that was there in the city. So nobody escaped. But what if somebody had escaped? What if somebody had escaped and gotten over to another city that was on their to-do list of taking possession of? What if somebody got there? What would they tell them? Well, I imagine they would have said something like, these people are weird. They fight differently than anybody else has ever fought. 
and look out for those horns. They don't blow them often. But boy, when they blow them, then they shout. And then the trouble really starts. Now, folks, what that should tell us, it's an example to us. What that should tell us is that every faith battle has a shout. Every faith battle has that which represents praise, which is what the horns blown by the priest did. And a shout of victory before you ever see it. That's the example that that is given to us. Are you still in Colossians 1? We can say that the, the children of Israel taking possession of Jericho in the manner that they did. And Hebrews chapter 10 about verse 30 says that the walls of Jericho fell by faith. Well, what does faith look like? Faith looks like something that represents praising God and a shout of victory. And that brings them to the place where the will of God is being done on the earth in their behalf. God wanted them to have the land. He wanted them to take the city. He wanted them to have the victory. He wanted this for them, but they have to possess it. So he tells them how to possess it. Now, if he didn't want them to have it, why would he tell them how? Remember all the things that Moses says later in the book of Deuteronomy. God's bringing you into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land where you'll build goodly houses in. Everything he said about the promised land was a great thing. God wanted his children to have that. He even wanted their forefathers to have it 40 years before. But they weren't willing to possess it. Joshua's generation was. So he tells them how to do it. And it works marvelously. And it brings about God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, what God wanted all along on behalf of the children of Israel. It brings about the kingdom of God on the earth in a measure. Or at least in type. Colossians chapter 1. Again verse 12 it says. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. A shout of praise. Or the singing of praises. Offering of praises. And a shout of victory. Is the way that we do it. Verse 13. Who God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In other words, it's saying, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and these are things the Holy Ghost had to reveal to him because nobody knew this stuff. Everybody is newly saved. They had to find these things out by getting instruction and direction from the Holy Ghost. And the instruction and the direction that the Holy Ghost gives us is very simply this. The kingdom of God has come now that Jesus is raised from the dead. The defeat of the enemy, Satan, is complete. And the promised land is yours. You still have to possess it. And how much, of it, how much you possess of it, all that Jesus has done, is determined not by what he did. He did that for everybody. But by what you choose to possess. By faith. He has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. God has made provision for you to experience in every area of your life the will of God on the earth, just as it is in heaven. God has made provision for you to live a life on the earth that the Old Testament calls days of heaven on the earth. He's made provision. For you to experience every aspect of heaven here. Doesn't mean you won't be attacked. Doesn't mean there won't be battles to to fight and victories to win. Doesn't mean you won't have to walk by faith. But by walking by faith. By keeping your eyes on the word and only the word. Instead of the circumstances. You can have. Every day. To be a day of heaven on the earth. You have already been translated into that kingdom. It's already yours. All you have to do is take it by faith. All you have to do is possess every little piece. Possess healing by faith. Possess abundance by faith. Possess peace by faith. 
It's all yours to begin with. It's already yours. You remember what Moses concluded those things in Deuteronomy 11 and by? On behalf of God, he said, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Your choice. A blessing if you'll keep the commandments of God. A blessing if you'll walk by word, walk by faith. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. He's talking to the family of God. A blessing if you walk according to the word, which means walking by faith. But a curse if you take sides against the word and say, I can't do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us the ability to understand who we are in Christ and all that he's done for us. Father, we thank you that we've been translated into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God here on the earth. We thank you that our faith will produce as great a miracles and even greater miracles than the children of Israel did when they took the city of Jericho. We thank you, Father. We have come into our promised land. We have come into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have come into the blessing of healing. We have come into the blessing of prosperity. Thank you, Father, for making it real to us. We commit to you, Lord, that we shall live by your word. We shall walk by faith. We shall praise you because of what you've given to us, not because of what we see. We will offer the sacrifice of praise and the shout of victory in every case. It worked for the the children of Israel in the battle of Jericho, which was given to us as an example of how it will work for us too. Thank you, Father, that because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, there's nothing that's impossible for us to accomplish when we act upon your word and use the precious and holy name of Jesus. Therefore, Father, we call ourselves healed. We call ourselves abundantly supplied. We call ourselves in the midst of peace, no matter what's going on around us. Lord, we offer you the sacrifice of praise because circumstances don't change your word and they certainly don't change you. So victory is ours in every way in every respect everything that binds whether they be addictions whether they be attacks of the enemy everything that binds is broken in the name of Jesus it's broken they are broken by the blood of Jesus that was shed we take hold of it by faith in Jesus precious name we thank you father That because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you will answer us. You will be with us in trouble. You will rescue us and you will weigh us down with blessings. With long life, you shall satisfy us and show us your salvation. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Psalm 34 is a beautiful psalm. It starts off with, I will praise the Lord continuously. Bless the Lord continuously. His praise shall always be in my mouth. Verse 2 says, I will put my boast, I will make my boast in the Lord. The, The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. I've often read that and thought it should say, I will make my boast in the Lord. The religious shall hear thereof and be mad. Because that's pretty much the way it works, isn't it? But the humble ones are the ones that accept the word to be true no matter what it looks like. The humble ones, what God calls humility, is accepting the word as truth. It doesn't matter if it looks like you can make it or not. The word's true. I think we ought to be making our boast in the Lord a little more than we do. 
I believe that one of the keys to victory that the walls of Jericho experience illustrate for us is that we need to begin to say the victory is ours. We need to begin to say God is on our side. We need to begin to say God will do the spectacular, miraculous, that which seems to be impossible because he's with us and because his word's true. I will make my boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Let's all stand. Don't forget the night of worship tonight. I think it would be good, especially with what we've been sharing this morning. If there's sickness in your body, come tonight and praise it away. Amen. Amen. We love you so much. We appreciate your desire for the word. We appreciate your commitment to God. And we thank you for being a part of us. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.